A message from our sponsor, Riverview Boat Store and Tug Service. Riverview Boat Store and Tug Service has been your trusted marine supplier servicing the Upper Mississippi River for over 25 years. Since 1998, they have grown to be one of the largest inland boat stores. They are not just a delivery service. They have what you need in stock and ready to order. Their office and warehouse are centrally located in Bellevue, Iowa, and with their fleet of specially built delivery boats and refrigerated vehicles, Riverview can conveniently deliver groceries anywhere on the Upper Miss or the Illinois. Their green and white tugs can be found up and down the Mississippi, and they operate one of the largest lock assist businesses on the Upper Miss with 12 tugs servicing tows from Hastings, Minnesota to Clinton, Iowa. Their website now includes online grocery ordering with monthly specials available for review or download, and their fleet equipment information and vessel telephone numbers can also be found there. Like them on Facebook at Riverview Boat Store and Tug Service, and check out their website at www.riverviewboatstore.com. Welcome back to Between the Levees. I'm joined today by Captain Richard Lease, a pilot that runs from Cairo to Pittsburgh and back. Uh, he is former, former police, and he's got a nice little family. Plenty more to talk about today. Captain Lease, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Welcome to the show. Glad we can get this lined up uh, ahead of time here. Um, first things first, I saw some, uh, some community outreach recently on Facebook, uh, yeah. some students. So tell me about that experience. So one thing that I'm extremely passionate about is, um, you know, I, I grew up in a very unorthodox way. Um, I had a really rough childhood. And so growing up in that kind of environment, I didn't really have many opportunities in life. I'll say that. Um, I would definitely be the poster child for the kid that chose the wrong path. Uh, didn't have very many good role models in my life. Um, so one thing that kind of intrigued me is, is seeing people that take their time out of their day to reach out to communities and try to help their surrounding area, the, the kids in the in the communities that, that may not be able to afford to go to college or may not want to go to college. So one thing that I find very, very um, important in my life is to give back to the communities where I come from. Um, also anyone that'd be willing to give me that opportunity. So um, one thing that I love to do is, is uh, recruiting. I love talking to people about what I do. I think this is the best kept secret in the nation. I think this job give someone like me a chance to make a substantial living um, where I would normally not, I wouldn't be able to have these kind of opportunities. So um, in my community here, I've spoke to the high school for many years about the industry, um, about the company that I work for now. Um, but they have started a neat program here in uh, Stewart County, Tennessee, where I live. Um, they are actually going out and starting them in eighth grade to, you know, middle school to get them almost on a career path to come join the river industry, which I think is really unique, starting these kids out at the middle school level, letting them know that there's opportunities out here outside of the realm that we all grew up in of, you know, college, um, you know, you, you do have other options to make a substantial living, um, I mean, I work six months a year, I travel for work and I travel when I'm home with my family. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful opportunity and I love to, to share it anytime I can. So the school systems here in Stewart County have invited uh, me and our company into the 
school system at the high school level and the middle school level. So it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, I'm pretty honored to be able to give this gift of such a beautiful job to our community. What kind of feedback do you get from students and teachers? So that is something that, you know, the first time I ever talked to them, I was, I was pretty concerned, you know, because we live in a community that has the Tennessee and the Cumberland River. So uh, formally, I, I ran a lot of years on the Cumberland River as well, and I've dabbled a little bit in the Tennessee River. But um, most people here are familiar with the river industry, but a lot of people don't really have that outreach program to them to kind of go into detail what it is and to let them know what the kind of prerequisites are to the job. So a lot of times, unless they have family members that are in it, um, we lose a lot of really good candidates because, you know, they may not be wanting to go to college, but they'll end up picking another career and, um, you know, they could have had a wonderful career with us. So the main thing for us is just to give them that opportunity and the feedback has been overwhelming. Um, the kids are coming to me and saying, you know, uh, my family wouldn't be able to afford college. Um, my family told me that if I want to do something, I'm going to have to do that on my own because our financial means just don't allow it. So it's really neat to see the kids and the teachers come up to us and they're like, wow, I, I wish I would have had this opportunity whenever I was growing up, but no one ever come and talk to us. It's kind of one of those things. I think it's the best kept secret but I don't think we should keep it a secret, right? I think that we should tell everyone about it, you know, and, and you can probably see the passion in my eyes about the industry. It is something that I'm proud of. Um, my daughter was a really unique experience. She's 12. And so she got to come with me to the middle school. That's the first time that she's actually got to see me talk about what I do for a living. Um, she asked me if I minded while we were there, if she played on her phone, right? She, she kind of just wanted to hang with me that day. Cause I just got, I just flew in from Pittsburgh. So um, I looked over and I kind of got a little sense of pride because she had put her phone down and she was watching. And whenever it was time to take the picture, she asked if she could stand next to me. And whenever we were leaving, she said, Dad, I'm really proud of what you do. And to see all the kids in there being so responsive to what I had to tell them, she said, um, I had no idea that there were so many facets to your job, to your career, that it's not just being a deckhand or an engineer or a pilot we have so many avenues to go down. And I know watching your podcast that you interview so many different people in our profession. Um, that's, I think that's a wonderful outlet that you have to be able to show people that it's not just manual labor. You also have, you know, the, I, the technical sides of it, the accounting sides of it, you know, HR sides of it. And every one of us is important and vital to the next. You know, I couldn't do what I do if it wasn't for everyone that does what they do. So very good, positive feedback. Well, good. Good to hear. Yeah, this uh, part of the drive for this podcast has been to, to sort, of, sort of expose that very big secret we're all, yeah. we're all sitting on. Let's get right into it then, sir. Tell me, where were you born? So I was born in San Antonio, Texas. And um, like I said, my childhood was not the poster childhood that you see a lot of people have. So um, I was raised by a single mother. I've never met my father. Um, I actually reached out. I'm 41 years old. I reached out last year. I finally tracked him down and found him. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't make a connection, but I got to talk to all of his family members and I got to have all the questions answered about, you know, medical history and things that I would need to watch for my children. Um, but my mom had me when she was 14 years old. Um, she had me at 15 years old. I'm sorry. She got pregnant at 14. But um, basically, we 
we grew up and we grew up together. We were best friends and I love my mom. I lost her to cancer when she was 21. Um, but my childhood was really bad. Um, she bounced from house to house, from man to man that would take care of us. And um, those guys really preyed on my mom being a single mother. And some of them were pretty awful. The, my childhood until I was 12 years old was hiding underneath my bed, listening to my mom scream from guys abusing her. Um, so I grew up in a domestic violence house. Um, at 12 years old, uh, my mom was actually beat to death by one of the men. Um, I ran in there at 12 years old. I finally had enough confidence to stand up to a grown man. Um, obviously, I know I'm not standing up, but I'm not a big man now, even though I'm 41. Um, but I went in there to go fight this man because uh, hearing your mom scream is horrible. But when you don't hear her scream, you know something's wrong. So I ran back there. Whenever he turned the lights on, he realized what he did and he ran. So the ambulance came, they revived my mother um, and she was in intensive care for several months. When she got out of intensive care, we come home, we grabbed just what we could carry in our hands and we ran to Tennessee to go hide. Um, so I've had my name changed, uh, my last name a couple of times, um, you know, trying to hide from these bad people. Um, so at 12 years old, we moved to Tennessee. Um, Things got better and my mom met a guy who is um, asked me for her hand in marriage. And so from 12 on, uh, he was an ex-military, um, great guy, wonderful influence. Uh, me being the protective son that I am, um, I didn't really have a whole lot to do with him um, other than I just told him to take care of her and my little sister. Um, so as soon as I turned 18, I moved out. Um, he was nothing but wonderful to us. Um, but that hints to what you led with in the beginning, growing up in that kind of home, growing up without, you know, we moved to Tennessee, I didn't know anyone, you know, we just ran here out of necessity, out of survival. Um, so I didn't know anyone here. I didn't have any way of, you know, meeting anyone just other than school. Um, so I started working out here in tobacco fields and hay fields and um, funny story, I married the farmer's daughter. Uh, we started dating back in high school. Uh, I was a field hand and I made $5 an hour throwing hay bales and working tobacco fields for her family. And um, yeah, she's, I thought she was beautiful. So uh, she told me, I feel like you're destined for great things. I know you had a bad childhood. I know you don't have a lot of prospects. Uh, her father told me, he's like, you know, you just want best for your family. And, you know, um, I want my daughter to have a good life. And I said, well, if she stays with me, she'll have that. Um, so I was working in tobacco fields, doing all these things, but like I was alluding to a minute ago, you said I was a police officer. That's the reason why I got into law enforcement was to help women get out of these situations of these you know, bad men, um, to let them know that they're not trapped. There are ways out. And I, I think that's very important, you know, that, that no one ever feels suppressed or defeated. You know, there, there is other avenues. And so I'm a prime example of that. I grew up in a horrible environment and now I travel the world with my kids. We have passport stamps, you know, for my children. My, my son is seven and my daughter's 11. And like I said, we travel around and do everything together. It's just amazing. Well, over those years uh, with the troubled household and everything, how, how did school go for you? So I was a terrible student. 
um, obviously I was distracted. And, um, you know, when I was young now, not as an adult, but when I was young, I had a lot of anger, you know, and I, and I did not express it the best way. So I was not a very good student, uh, in elementary school. Um, you know, I was constantly getting in trouble and, you know, just didn't really care because for me, um, schoolwork was less important than my mom's safety. So a lot of times I would put those things on the back burner. And then of course, too, you're supposed to go home and do homework, but we had other exigent circumstances going on. So um, didn't get it done, you know. Now, when we moved to Tennessee, um, the school systems out here are phenomenal. They're small schools. I grew up with a very small class that we come up through the ranks with. And so when I was going to uh, North Stewart Elementary School, we were K through eight. So very small school structure. There was no middle school at the time. And then we, when we came to high school, um, we had 120 in my graduating class. So we were pretty small. We were the biggest class they had at the time in the school's history. Um, so I was always, I would say I was always a D and C student. Um, things absolutely got better uh, when I came to Tennessee. But in my younger years, yes, um, school was not a priority for me. Um, but I always knew I didn't want to go to college. That was something that school to me was absolutely necessary, extremely important. I just knew that I wouldn't want to follow in the career path of college. And I, and I feel like everyone has different circumstances, of course. We all have life and we all have different things going on, but school isn't for everyone. And that's okay. You know, you don't have to go down the same path as everyone else because there's lots of paths to get to the same goal. So you did finish out high school and go straight into policing? So when I first graduated high school, I did graduate. Um, and like I said, I met my wife at a young age. Um, so we dated um, through school and we broke up my senior year. Um, best thing ever, because I realized just how amazing she was. Um, so I definitely came crawling back, begging for her to take me back. And luckily she did. Um, so we got married. She was a wonderful influence in my life. She's my best friend, still is. Um, so we've been married this year right here will be 21 years. And then of course we dated three years before that. And I'm only 41. So I've been with her over half my life. Um, but when I graduated high school, we live in a community where there's not a lot of options. Um, we have a power plant here that's fixing to shut down. It's marked you know, to be stopped. Other than that, unless you go into law enforcement or work at the bank or become a school teacher or something like that, um, you really don't have very many opportunities here. So that was something that I got into the sheet metal union and I would drive an hour and 45 minutes from Indian Mound, Tennessee to Nashville. And I did that until I was 21 because you can't be a police officer in Tennessee until you're 21 years old. So when I became 21 years old, um, I went and joined the police department in Dover, Tennessee, um, and I did that. I went to the academy for them, spent several years here, and then I spent a year in Clarksville PD. Um, I loved it. I've, I've made an impact in many people's lives. I got to fulfill what I wanted to fulfill out of it. Um, I left law enforcement financially. You know, we just didn't make very much money. I'm very thankful for the opportunity I had. Um, but one of the biggest conversations I think I had with somebody was I was working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and I made $30,000 a year. I asked a deckhand who had just started on the river, 
how much he made. And he told me that he cleans toilets and makes coffee and makes 34. So I've been shot at. I fist fought the biggest guy I ever had to get into a fight with was seven. He was six foot 11, almost seven foot tall. I'm five foot five. So I was, you know, yelling at his belly button. Um, definitely not the best position to be in. Well, tell me about some highs and lows on the police force before we jump into the, the, the river career. Yeah. So it's amazing. Um, it's a hard job. You know, you see, I think they say something just for argument's sake, 90% of the community is good people, 10% are bad. But when you're a cop, you deal with that 10%, 90% of the time, and the other 10 uh, for the remainder. So it's a hard job. Um, I think mental health or mental health, you know, definitely weighs into that because you do start to get a little gloom, you know, and you do start to see so much bad on a daily basis that you begin to believe that everything's bad. And that's not the case. There's wonderful people out here. Um, so I would say that would probably be the negative side of it. You know, when you deal with a homicide or murder or a car accident of someone that you know, and you've watched them pass away, I can't tell you how many times I've done CPR on, you know, kids and they didn't make it, you know? And so that stuff bothers you. You know, they say, leave your work at home. Well, it's kind of hard whenever day in day out is just, it's just sad, you know, but there are some beautiful things that happen. And I know one case um, that was, it's kind of funny how it turned out, but I was running radar um, on the side of the highway and a car come by me going about 10 miles an hour into oncoming traffic lane. So your first reaction as a police officer is drugs or alcohol. So I got behind the vehicle. I initiated my lights and called in that I was going to be trying to make a traffic stop. Well, the person in the vehicle was swerving from side to side and I called ahead and got them to block the bridge. So they basically put up a roadblock. Well, as I was following this lady at eight to 10 miles an hour, um, she saw the lights up ahead and she swerved into a bank parking lot. So she hit the curb and the car got high centered on the concrete. So I got out of my car thinking still intoxication. I ran up to the vehicle, was banging on the window. I don't know how you would feel about it if you thought you were driving and then someone knocks on your window, it'd probably be pretty scary. So she was scared to see me standing next to her and she still has the car in gear, but she's stuck. Um, I finally got her to open the door and as she fell out of the door, she was passing out and she tapped on her arm where her vein is and then she fell on the ground. I didn't think much of it for that split second other than maybe still drugs or alcohol, but I had a, real, a really weird odor that come from her body and that was um, a very like a sweet smell, but it wasn't an alcohol or a sugar, it was almost like a sugary fruity smell. So rather than taking her to booking, I had an overwhelming feeling that something's wrong. And then I got thinking back to when she was tapping the vein on her arm. So I looked inside of her car, come to find out she was diabetic. So um, obviously I'm, I'm not diabetic, so I didn't know how to administer that. So I called EMS, they come out there and they gave her her appropriate amount of uh, insulin that she needed. And it was one of the most wild things I've ever seen. As soon as she got that insulin, she popped up and she started crying because she was very confused of why she was on the ground. I didn't have her handcuffed, but 
seeing this, the overwhelming amount of police officers and obviously roadblocks and everything and her car being stuck on concrete. Um, had I not encountered her that day, I mean, there's no telling what would have happened. She could have killed someone, killed herself, you know, killed a family. Who knows? I mean, she might have went off in a ravine and we never found her. So it was a lot of times it's it's you have to take the good with the bad and, and you know that you saved someone's life that day. And that's that's good to know, you know, that you made a difference in your community. So that would be a positive. Any other positives come to mind? Yes, I mean, we could talk about it all day. Um, you know, I've I've seen the transformation um, from people that made bad decisions that decided to start going down the path of drugs that I cared about. And, you know, one of the instances come up is a good friend of mine. Um, I know the U.S. Marshals come down and we were serving warrants in our area. And one of them happened to be a childhood best friend. Now, me and him, Obviously, after school, he chose a path and I chose a path. Um, but I never really believed that he would go that far and come to find out he was selling drugs, uh, large shipments of drugs. And so we went around serving all the warrants and lo and behold, they saved the best for last. I don't know how the federal government knows who my childhood friends were, but they know. So I went out there. They showed me evidence that he had been moving large shipments of drugs. So I went out there and arrested him. Um, I brought him in, let him sit in the front seat, not handcuffed, which the marshal did not like. Um, but we brought him back and uh, I booked him in and I was crying. You know, it's sad to see him choose that path. But I'd say probably two or three times a week, I'd go bring him a candy bar and uh, a pinch of tobacco, which the jailers did not like me bringing in tobacco into the jail. But, you know, he's a person too. And so he served his time. And when he got out, um, he started going to church and he changed his life. And so he told me at the time that he was very mad at me, you know, for arresting him. And after he had cleaned up, he told me later that, you know, potentially saved his life. Now I've heard through the grapevine that he started to choose to do bad things again. I don't know if that's true or not, because I haven't spoke to him since those, that day of his release, you know, but at the time it was a beautiful moment to see someone that you care about make a bad decision and then choose to go a different route. You know, we all have passed, we all make mistakes. Every one of us can have fault found in each one of us, but it's never too late to make the right decision. Well, tell me a little bit more about this, this gentleman you meet that's a deckhand that says, Hey, I make more than you. And I make coffee and clean toilets. Uh, <laughs> but tell me some more about that. And then your transition into the industry. Yeah, so it was just, um, so Dover here where we live at is, um, like I said, we have the Tennessee and the Cumberland River on both sides of it. So there is a lot of tow boaters here and you do get to meet a lot of people. So it was a childhood friend I was talking to and, um, you know, it, he was just telling me about how happy he was in the industry. And so I started asking more questions. Well, I didn't know how to go about the process of getting in. So I had at the police department, it's a funny way how we met, but um, he called me one night and his sister had passed away. Well, I, he gave me permission to break into her house and I consoled him and, you know, he confided in me and we became really good friends after that. And he's a much older gentleman than I am. And his name is Larry. Um, so when I was talking to him, I said, I have a friend of mine that just started out there on the river. And he said, have you ever thought about a career on the river? And I said, I, I wouldn't even know how to go about it. 
And it's kind of funny because I see the boats go by every day and never gave it a second thought. I had no idea what they do. Or, and he said, I don't know what they do either, but I, I have a friend that could get you at least an interview. So he made a call and I drove to Paducah and got an interview and got started on the river. Um, and so my thought process was I'm going to work on the river for a year, one year. And I told them that in my interview, I said, I'm going to be out here for one year. I'm going to make as much money as I can. I'm going to be the best employee that you have ever had for one year. And they said, why do you keep saying that? I was like, well, my passion is truly law enforcement and helping people. And they said, why would we hire you if you're only going to stay a year? And I said, well, how many people quit in a year? And he said, that's a very valid point because we have a terrible turnover rate. You know, when people get out here and they don't want to be away from home, they quit. And I said, well, for me, I want to make some money. I have a goal in mind. My wife, who's my best friend, is supportive of my decision. So I came to the river with a calendar in hand, my first trip, and that was day one. So um, the captain on the boat came down, talked to me, and he said, I really like you. You're very driven. You have a good level head. He's like, why don't you think about this being a career? Then I said, I really appreciate the confidence, and I'm going to work and learn everything I can. I will do everything that's asked of me but please don't ask me to stay because I'm only going to be here for a year. And I showed him my calendar and he laughed and I didn't understand at the time, but I just kept marking days. Well, when I got to my year mark, um, I got on my knees and I prayed and I said, God, I want you to show me what you want me to do. And I won't question it. And as soon as I got up my, off my knees, I didn't even dust my knees off. I picked up the phone and called the police department and said, Hey, I'm ready to come back. And I said, we have a car waiting on you in the driveway. And I said, that's wonderful. When I opened my door, the captain was standing there in the hallway and said, I want you to ride with me one more trip, just one more trip. That's all I ask. Make a little bit more money. The police department's not going to miss you for 30 days. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. So I called the police department. I said, hey, I'm going to get 30 more days out here and then I'm done. And they're like, OK. So at the end of that 30 day trip, I got promoted to second mate. And I asked him, I said, well, what does the second mate make? And he told me, I think at the time it was about fifty four thousand. And I said, $54,000. And he said, yeah. And I said, wow, my chief of police at the time here um, was making 46000 That would be the goal in law enforcement to hopefully one day become the chief. But I would already be making $10,000 more at second mate. So I decided to go ahead and stay for another six months. And the captain continued to laugh at me the whole time. But unbeknownst to him, I was dead set. I was just going to make some money and then quit. So at my six month mark of running second mate, I got on my knees and I prayed and I said, I will never question anything you have to say. I got off my knees, called the police department, said, I'm coming back. Same song and dance. When I opened the door, I got promoted to mate. So then I got up to making $63,000 a year, um, which I was working 28 days on 14 off. So I said, okay, well, that's kind of a lot of money to pass up. So maybe I should just hang just a little bit longer. And this process went on. Um, I ran mate for, I, total, I was on deck for three and a half years. So whatever time frame that was, is how long I was running first mate. And I said, you know what? I'm done. I was in negative 36 degree weather. Uh, there was a bad storm that came through with the wind chill. It was negative 36. I've never felt anything like that being from the South. I had it in my mind. I was done. I walked upstairs, shook the captain's hand, told him, thank you for everything, but I'm going to go downstairs and pack. 
And he said, well, I hate to hear that because you just got promoted to steersman. So I was going to be a, you know, interim pilot. And I was like, well, how much do pilots make? And he told me, and I said, I think I found my career choice. I think I'm going to stay with the river. So I got in the steering program. Um, one part of the story I forgot to tell you is why I was out there. The captain told me that he wants me to come up and start steering. So he said he didn't feel good. He wants me to steer. He wants to see if I could do it. You know, just different excuses to get me upstairs. Um, well, I enjoyed it. I liked it. And to him, I was good at it. So he said he wanted to make me a pilot. Well, then I became a steersman. So I'd already been steering for about a year and a half on my own, just in my off watch and my days off, I would come back and ride. Um, I didn't want to, but he told me that if you're not going to help yourself, don't ask me to help you. Um, so he kind of put it to me like, this is your destiny that you can have control over. But if you're not going to seize the opportunity, don't ask me to help you. So I'd go up there and steer my off watch. Well, then whenever I got put in the steersman program, I spent a little over a year in the, in the steersman program. And then I got turned loose as a pilot. And that guy's name was Walter Hawley. Um, wonderful guy. We're still friends to this day. And he told me at the time, he's like, you're probably going to hate me because I'm going to push you. But one day you won't even remember these days of being exhausted. Um, I smiled, said some bad words underneath my breath. And now I don't remember any of it other than I made a big sacrifice. But I had someone who was more than just a captain to me, he was a mentor, you know, he guided me and helped me. And sometimes I needed a little bit of nudging, you know, if I was tired, he told me, he said, well, don't worry, nobody else ever had to make a sacrifice in their life. It'll get handed to you if you just be patient enough. Well, I would still go to bed because I was tired, but obviously you can't sleep. So I would get right back up and go up there and steer. And if I hadn't done those things, those questions that I had about this particular turn or this lock or this bridge, I may not have got that answer. You know, I may have went through this whole program and never seen that person, that exact situation. So also when I got turned loose, I could reach out to Walter at any time. I would call him day or night if he was on the boat or not, especially your first year as a pilot, you're scared and nervous and you're unsure about a lot of things. So I would reach out to him and he would always give me, a wonderful answer, give me plenty of instructions, make sure that he went over and over and over to make sure I was clear. But in fairness too, before I got in a bad situation, I would call him at least an hour and a half, two hours in case maybe he was in bed, give him a chance to wake up and react because you definitely don't want to be reactive. You want to be proactive. So I would always get the uh, lowdown before I get there. But that also transitioned into back the way I was talking about liking to help people and try to help the next person. Um, that made me decide of what kind of captain I wanted to be. So I believe that running a boat is good. I believe that making your deadlines is important, obviously. But I believe that we have a very unique opportunity to, to make people's lives much different than they see it, you know. I can see something in somebody they may not see it in themselves. And I try to build on that, build them up, give them opportunities like I had. And next thing you know, they're an engineer or they're a pilot or they're shoreside, you know, working somewhere. And I think that's, that's what it's all about. I think it's a legacy you leave behind is helping the next generation. So 
to me, I believe mentorship is very important and guiding and helping the next generation see their potential. What's been the most surprising thing you've seen out there? Uh, I guess when you first step foot on a boat and then kind of walk me through maybe a few highlights of, uh, of your, your time on deck. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing that I had no idea what to expect. Um, you know, when I first started, YouTube wasn't very popular, you know, obviously the internet itself wasn't real popular, but I, I had zero knowledge of what I was getting into. I had no idea. So when I got on the boat, I was just blown away at the size of the engines that we could hold 90,000 gallons of diesel fuel. I had no idea that they were so self-sufficient, you know, that we had so many different people in so many different aspects, you know, from the captain, the pilot, the engineer, the deck crew, we had a cook, you know, that our grocery budget would be so substantial. I mean, I'd never had to feed 10 people. So I had no idea what the operating cost of a day-to-day -day boat would be. Um, the size of my room, you know, that we had washers and dryers. Obviously this stuff seems like common sense now, but just starting out, I had no idea what to expect. Um, so it was really unique. And then on the deck, you use muscles that I was used to throwing hay bales and picking up tobacco sticks, you know, um, I had never used muscles that we use out there for tightening ratchets and carrying wires and rigging and, you know, all those different things. I'm very acclimated to the heat, but if it gets 50 degrees outside, I wear a jacket and a toboggan, you know, I'm not used to cold. I never was around the cold. Obviously here in Tennessee, we get winter, but I just stay inside. Um, so that was probably the biggest shock to me is negative 36. Like what? You know, like, how do you dress for that? So going back to Walter, when I told him I was going to quit, he laughed at me and he told me how to dress. I didn't know how to dress for that kind of weather. I was like the kid on um, a Christmas story, you know, uh, that had all the layers of clothes on, fell over, couldn't get back up. Obviously, that's not the way you want to dress. So I learned a really neat thing that you put on uh, insulated pants, a pair of regular blue jeans, and then I would wear uh, rain gear because rain gear is plastic, right? It blocks the wind from getting to you and it keeps your body heat in. And if you get wet, what gets really cold is that air hitting that wetness. So I would wear a full rain suit with the hood on, then I'd put my toboggan on the outside of it. I promise you even in negative 36 degree weather, if you're wearing a rain suit, you're not wearing a jacket, it's coming off. You don't need a hat because it's gonna get, it, it, it's just, you're gonna burn up. And then I put uh, bread bags on the shoes, on my socks. So I put a regular pair of socks on, I put like a Ziploc bag or bread bag over my feet. Then I put an insulated sock on the outside of that. That way, when your feet sweat, the cold and the wetness stays inside of the bag. Same, same principle, you're not getting wet. So um, that was probably the biggest shock to me is seeing the, the weather temperatures change. But if you have someone like, like I was talking about being a mentor, they can help you learn how to get past that, you know, wearing rubber gloves rather than leather gloves. And then you put your leather glove on the outside of a rubber glove, you know, things like that made it tolerable where I could be out there and be back to my normal comfort zone of heat rather than cold. Um, the sure size of the boats and the amount of tonnage that we moved is unbelievable. You know, I, 
50,000 barrels in a barge, that's unbelievable. Then you push, you know, X amount of them. I mean, think about all the road traffic that cuts off, you know, the amount of logistics that goes through, how many hands are a part of that one barge moving. I mean, you're part of a very big operation here. And that's, for me, you know, I'd never been a part of, besides law enforcement, been a part of something that was so big, you know, so important to the nation. You know, I mean, we have to have these products on a daily basis. And I took a lot of pride in knowing that I have a hand in that, you know, that this coal that's keeping your house warm, I had a hand in pushing that, you know, this diesel you just filled up your truck with for your hay field, you know, I brought that in here. So a, a huge sense of pride. And like you said, uh, you know, a huge shock too, not knowing what you're getting into. But it's um it's a beautiful job. I mean, I think it's I tell everybody about it. You know, I I couldn't say enough of how proud I am to be a part of this industry, the opportunities that continue to come for me. Um I just wish everyone had a chance to come out here. And just so I know where not to go, where were you decking in minus 36 degrees? <laughs> well, it was a storm that came in. So it was the wind chill, right? Blowing in. But we were up there at Pittsburgh in the winter. And so obviously you're on the water. It's going to make the temperature come a little bit worse. But yeah, it was, we were out there with loads going into a lock. And obviously we had to go out there, but it was snowing really hard. And the wind was, I guess it was getting up to, 40s and 50 mile an hour winds and the temperature was already somewhere around three you know three or four below so it's the wind chill made it negative 36 i wasn't in alaska you know but it was the wind chill on top of the actual temperature so yeah it was it was pretty brutal but when the storm passed you know we got lucky enough to go just back to negative three or zero whatever it was still too cold for me you know yeah so it's it's just something that was a fluke, you know, but I still had to work in it. So whether it's wind chill or not, it's still cold. Well, I know very little about the Ohio aside from where it starts, where it ends and that the mileposts run backwards. But uh, yeah, can you tell me, maybe walk me through a trip from origin to the, the very end? Yeah. So that's another thing too, that I thought was really exciting about the industry is I I never traveled anywhere when I was a kid, except for the time that we ran to Tennessee. Um, other than that, I never really went anywhere. My grandmother took me to Disney World and Universal Studios. Uh, I think I was probably about 13 or 14, uh, which was a really neat experience. But outside of that, I've never really done anything like that. So um, if we start out in Cairo, right, we'll be down there in Cairo, Illinois. And you start going up and I was just absolutely blown away. Um, we had a, I had a little camera that I would take pictures with, um, but starting out in Cairo and then going up and seeing Metropolis and Joppa, and then you're going up to uh, Paducah and you're coming around all these little towns, you know, going up through Smithland, Kentucky, and you start going up and, and I'm going up to big towns like uh, Louisville, Cincinnati, um, seeing all these city fronts, you know, and then making locks. I have never seen a lock. I didn't even know what a lock was. And they said, we got to make a lock. And I was like, well, that's great. And kind of just sitting there like, no, we have to go outside. And I was like, oh, I thought we were making something. Like, no, we're about to go through a lock. And I was like, okay, you know, it's ignorance on my part, but I had no idea. 
you know, so you start going up and you have to go through locks where they can hold, the core can hold water levels for us to navigate through uh, based on overabundance of rain or lack thereof. So it's neat starting out in Cairo and then going to locks and then seeing big city fronts and little bitty towns. And I, I thought it was really neat as you're coming up through these areas, you know, it may take us two weeks to get from Cairo to Georgetown, right below Pittsburgh. Uh, that's usually what we turn out of. Um, but we do run all the way up to Mongahaley and Allegheny, but I personally usually stop around Georgetown, but, um, it's like mile 34, 36, somewhere around there, 38. But as you're coming up, you know, we will need groceries. So it was neat to me to see how many, how many towns like Owensboro and Paducah, uh, Louisville that just have grocery stores that just have boats that'll bring them to you. Really? You know, like you can just call your local Piggly Wiggly. They're just going to bring you out groceries. Like that's, that's pretty impressive, you know, and $2,600 worth of groceries for one, you know, one pop. Uh, it was, it's really neat, you know, going through and seeing everybody, you know, you start out and it's flat. And as you're going up into West Virginia's hills, you know, and you're seeing this beautiful, you're seeing so many different beautiful skyscrapes and our, you know, sceneries and mountains to flat fields. And you're seeing all the different people going on with their daily lives in these major cities. And then you see the tractors out there, you know, telling up fields in the middle of nowhere. It's like, it, it lets you know just how small we are, each one of us as an individual, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty beautiful to see. I love it. Seeing tons of wildlife here in Dover. We're pretty fortunate. We have uh, some wildlife refuges refugees and uh we have the fort donaldson national battlefield so we have eagles that nest there but you may see an eagle but i know when i go up on the illinois river they're almost as prevalent as like a blackbird a crow you see them everywhere and you know i think that's really exciting to me is going on the illinois river or the upper mississippi going down to new orleans or baton rouge or going up to seeing pittsburgh or the tri-cities you know and uh, going across and over St. Louis, you know, it, for someone that had never traveled at that point in my life, I was just like a little kid. I didn't want to go to sleep. You know, I didn't want to miss any city front. You know, I wanted to see the world. You know, I, I thought that was a pretty cool way to see it four miles an hour at a time. You know, <laughs> this is slow going. I'm like, well, I know we're getting close to such and such town. I'm like, don't worry, buddy. You'll have plenty of time to go to sleep, wake up and still see it. So, you know, I realized that, um, you don't always have to be in a rush. You know, we like to go, 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 go on to our next project. But when you're moving three or four hours, miles an hour, you, you understand that we're, we move things a lot slower. What's been the most fascinating or, or captivating place you've been on a boat? Hmm. I say that I never, you know, not, I grew up around, Stewart County, where you have Tennessee and uh, the Cumberland River. I don't know that, I, I'd say probably in the early part of my career, the city fronts of Louisville and Cincinnati were just overwhelming because I, you know, I mean, I've been to Nashville, but to see such huge buildings and bridge after bridge after bridge and um, seeing how all of it works and how they control the water through those areas the amount of traffic and boats that go through there, you know, not just towboats, but pleasure crafts, you know, like Cincinnati, when they have a baseball game or a football game, um, 
the boats will almost line up from bank to bank. So I've, as a captain, I've actually had to go through there with police and Coast Guard escorts. They run like a V pattern and they'll go through and they'll make people move for us to come through. And we have to be escorted through there during the holiday times when the river's not closed down. Um, I had never seen anything like that. It looked like you could just walk across the river, you know, but the thing I guess that infatuates me the most or, or excites me the most is just to see how all these rivers interconnect because someone on the Cumberland River is not really concerned to what's happening over there on the Ohio. We don't hear anything about it here in this town. We don't know anything about what's going on in the Mississippi, but all of it does directly affect us. If the Mississippi is having trouble, they'll release water from the Ohio and its tributaries. So that can affect us directly over here for our fishing, for our wildlife, and for our navigation of our own region. So to see how the core balances this act of, well, we're getting a lot of rain in this region of the country, but this one's hurting, so we can release water slowly or rapidly to keep it from flooding. That, to me, when I saw how they all are like the vein of the nation, that, that was pretty impressive to me to see how all this comes together. Well, getting now off the water, uh, you have two or three children. I have two, yeah. And has this career been all they've known for you? Yes. And so when I was in law enforcement, I was talking about like mental health. Um, I guess because getting shot at and fighting people that are much bigger than you um, definitely does take a toll on you. I was extremely stressed out. So um, had a lot of pressures on me. And a lot of times too, when you have a lot of bad things happen to you and you go to people that are also having bad things happen to them, they don't want to talk about it because it's kind of taboo. You know, they, they don't want to admit they need help. So they don't want to talk to you about getting help. So a lot of times you just kind of bottle that stuff up. So when I was a police officer, um, we had tried, me and my wife had tried for eight and a half years to have children uh, from the time that we got married to, you know, eight and a half years later. Um, we didn't have any children. So I actually started on the river after law enforcement and the doctors told us we could never have kids. Wasn't going to happen. Um, so I started working on the river and um, my wife called me and she said, we're pregnant. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, the doctor told us it wasn't possible. Um, so we've had a miscarriage and then we had my daughter and then we had a miscarriage and we had my son. So those things are tough to go through. And we didn't realize until we opened up to people about it that it was as common as you would expect it to be. Um, so that really helped us getting that out there and knowing that we're not alone and other people have dealt with this too. Um, but yes, I have two beautiful children. I love them so much. And they have the same, um, I guess, wanderlust that I do. We love to travel. Uh, we go to Disney World once, sometimes twice a year. Uh, we've taken them out to California Disneyland. They've been to Hawaii, uh, the Bahamas, all over the uh, Caribbean. Uh, we're fixing to actually fly out in just a couple of days. We're taking our kids for nine days to the Dominican Republic. Uh, and then we're gonna take them to, me and my wife are gonna go on a adult only uh, trip to Bermuda. Um, that's another thing I think is amazing about this job is for my kids, it's hard for them to see me leave. But when I come home, all I do is their time. I spend every minute I can with my best friend, my wife, and with my children. And 
luckily they share the same passion of running through airports and you know eating in the little kiosks there and seeing new places and new cultures new people um they embrace what i do because when i come home i spend all my time with them so some people dwell on the 21 days 28 days that you're gone i like to dwell on the 28 21 days i'm home and that's what i do i focus everything to my family and my children and we're better for it i think they say absence makes the heart grow fonder after 21 days, she's ready to find out if that's true. She's ready for me to go back because I come home just long enough to mess up their routine, you know, but it's, it's wonderful. And I think it's because of how we embrace it as a family. You know, I come home and spend everything I have with them. You know, we have a pool. So we sit out there and sing Disney songs and see who can hold the breath the longest. You know, that's, that's important to us and grill out and just really enjoy each other's time when we're not traveling out of the country somewhere. Do you have any final few words for the industry, maybe for the current generation of decans or the next one? I would say the biggest thing that I can tell anyone is it's been life-changing for me. It's been a wonderful experience. I'm very thankful to be a part of it. And I try to tell everyone I can about it. Um, the job itself is uh, manual labor. It's tough. Uh, obviously you could get caught in a storm one day and be in horrible weather conditions. Um, but the industry has really changed. And I think that's important. We're very safety conscious, uh, especially at the place I work at now. That's their number one core value and they mean it, you know? So we don't want someone out there in dangerous conditions anymore. Obviously you're gonna have to work out in the heat and the cold, um, but the days of hurry, 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 let's go. Those days are gone and they needed to be, you know? And I think it's important to give the job a chance the first time I see an 18 year old guy or girl come out there to us and they're working and they get homesick, you know, they immediately just want to quit. They never really gave the job a chance because they didn't get to see how amazing it would be to be home for 28 days. I mean, I have, I only have to work half the year. That's pretty phenomenal. I don't, I've never had a job where I just work and have a whole month off. You know, I've, I could do anything I want to when I'm home. Um, so I think as an industry, someone coming into it, give it a fair chance, you know, come out there, I say, bring you a calendar and keep track of a year on a calendar. And at that day, 365, really give yourself a real reflection and see if this is something worth pursuing or if you should give it up. But I don't think that you can really understand the lifestyle we live until you've been doing it for about a year. I think that's a fair adjustment. You know, um, the other thing is, I think is really important, no matter what position you get to become, no matter how much rank you gain or whatever your title ends up being, don't ever forget where you came from and be a mentor, give back, help the next person, you know, because I could not be where I'm at today if it wasn't for someone like Walter Holly pushing me, right? I, I have a lot of drive myself, but when you're at the bottom of the food chain, looking up, it's pretty intimidating. But to have someone that's at the top reaching out an olive branch, it sure builds a lot of confidence. And now I'm in the unique position to be able to help someone that wants to become a pilot or help someone that wants to try to gain rank on the deck, um, put in people for promotions, um, 
have their voice be heard if they have something that needs to be brought up. I, I would say that would be the, the best thing is no matter who you become, never forget where you came from and help the next person. I think that's as good a place as any to stop, sir. I do appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. This has been a production of Where You At Studios, LLC.